invite you to turn in your Bible this morning to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, as we pick up our series in this gospel again, Luke chapter 12. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 49 through 59. I'm going to begin reading at verse 35, so we get a sense of the flow of the text and the context where we find our words this morning. Luke chapter 12, then we'll begin reading at verse 35. This is the word of the Lord. Let's give our attention to it. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begin, begins to beat the, female, the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And then our text. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, and mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right as you go with your accuser before the magistrate? Make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Lord Jesus, you are a loving Savior who gave his life to rescue and ransom 
rebels. And yet, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you also love us enough to speak strong words, to wake us up, to bring us into the life and light that are found in you alone. And so, Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, help me to speak and help us all to listen, to hear Jesus address his church tonight, this morning. And we'll give you the praise, Lord Jesus. Amen. The title of my message is Stern Words, Then, from a Loving Savior. Stern Words from a Loving Savior. Christian Smith, a a sociologist at Notre Dame University, has written several best-selling books in the last 10 years or so in which he chronicles the actual uh, beliefs and uh, the the faith of uh, young Americans, particularly young uh, Americans who profess to be Christian. And he's found that the Jesus that many, if not most, uh, young Americans who profess to be Christian, the Jesus that they believe in is not the Jesus that the Bible actually presents uh, to us as, for instance, we find here in Luke chapter 12. There's this discrepancy between who they assume Jesus is and what Jesus really is like. And so, for instance, a Christian Smith finds that the Jesus that many, if not most, young people in America believe is a Jesus who's not really that concerned about sexual morality. He's not into theology. He's not really into the church for that matter. He does not interfere with one's personal life. His primary desire is is to affirm uh, the self-worth of the individual, uh, to help people live a happy and self-fulfilled life here on this earth, and then bring them to heaven when they die. That's what Jesus is for. That's why he's to be uh, loved and believed in. And this is a fundamental conviction among people. So, and maybe you've had these sorts of conversations where you realize the person you're talking to maybe doesn't know much about Jesus, but one thing they do know and one thing they're utterly convinced of is that the Jesus they believe in would never judge anyone. Uh, the Jesus they believe in uh, doesn't discriminate, it doesn't make uh, dividing lines. There's no in or out. Uh, everybody is embraced in the same way by this Jesus. Uh, The Jesus that they believe in, very firmly believe in, would never talk about casting fire of judgment, and he would never talk about dividing families over issues of religion, or issues of faith. However, this morning we see that the real Jesus does exactly those things. The real Jesus does exactly those things. One of the reasons the Gospels are written is to help us remove our false assumptions concerning who Jesus actually is. We can easily look at the, the young evangelical culture out there, and it, it'd be easy for us to, to say uh, how silly that might be, how wrong that certainly is, and, and yet fail to see that we share some of these traits. Uh, part of being a Christian is a process of having uh, misconceptions removed, I remember the disciples had this experience. They thought they had Jesus pretty well figured out. And then he would do something that would just shatter the categories. He would talk to water and wind, and it would listen to him. And they fell down terrified. They, they had not expected that. Whatever they had believed about Jesus, it had not included that. 
And you'll find that all the way through, of course, when he's on the cross and dying, doing exactly what he came to do and what he told them he would do, they had not expected that. And so part of being a Christian is having our misconceptions, our false assumptions erased by the real thing, the truth about who Jesus is. And and Luke chapter 12 12 is a text that is designed to help us just wipe away some of the vague sentimental um, American ideas about Jesus and maybe some of our own just false assumptions about what he is like, and we get to meet the real thing. And the real thing is much more convicting and yet in the same way encouraging. Uh, The real Jesus is not a vague, sentimental, nice guy. The real Jesus is here on a mission to rescue sinners, a mission to wake people up and to get them in tune with spiritual and eternal reality. You cannot hold on to vague, sentimental, mushy ideas about Jesus when you read the Gospels, particularly uh, Luke chapter 12 here. The real Jesus spoke hard words, uh, words that offended people. Uh, But this is the Jesus, you see, that actually did come to earth. This is the Jesus that went to the cross. This is the Jesus that rose again from the dead. This is the Jesus that ascended into heaven. And this is the Jesus that you and I are going to meet on the last day. It'll be no other Jesus than this one. And so it's a Jesus we need to learn to deal with today. Jesus spoke these words on purpose. They're not throwaway words. They weren't not words that just mistakenly slipped out on a difficult day where he just expressed frustration and he's sick of the whole thing and I wish we could just cast fire and be done with it and and I'm just overwhelmed by this baptism. These are not throwaway words. Jesus means them. And so let's give our attention to them. This morning we're going to look first at Jesus Speaking about a a fire that he desires to cast, a baptism that he is distressed to undergo. Jesus is going to talk about a division that is necessarily going to happen. And then Jesus talks to us about a decision that has to be made. A fire to cast. I came to cast fire on earth. Over this past Christmas season, we've been asking the question, why did God become man? Why would the second person of the Trinity put aside the glory of heaven and come in the most humble and uh, meek way, uh, come to this earth as a baby? Why would God take on flesh? And, and we've answered that in various ways. Well, Jesus answers it here in our text in a very specific way. I came to cast fire on earth. I came to cast fire on the earth, and he expresses an eagerness, would that it were already kindled. What is he talking about? Well, in the Bible, if you remember, the, when, when the, the Bible talks about fire and judgment or fire that comes from God, uh, it it's almost always refers to judgment. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah. When fire comes from God, it always has an effect. And it is God, when, when God in his, in his uh, flaming Holiness, God the consuming fire, when he engages the reality of this world with its, with its unholiness, right? There's, there's going to be an effect. And so you find in the Bible that the fire of judgment does several things. We usually think of, of judgment simply as condemnation. So to judge someone is to condemn them. Well, that's one of the things that, that the fire of judgment does, but it's it's just, it's just one of the things. We need to 
We need to get a broader sense of what the word actually refers to. In the scripture, you'll find that uh, judgment fire, on the one hand, reveals the true nature of things. So Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 3.13, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So when, when God comes near, the, the judgment fire reveals the true nature of a thing. And that which is consumable and, and, and worthless, the chaff, is burned up. And that which is um, valuable is maintained. So you have, it reveals the true nature of things, but it also destroys then what is wicked and it preserves and purifies what is what is good so you think of the red sea moses is leading the israelites and they're coming through the red sea and there's an there's an act of divine judgment the waters open and what uh, in that red sea um, act god preserves his people and destroys the evil one so judgment always has this two-edged nature to it Reichen says the fire of God consumes what is destined for destruction and purifies what God has ordained to refine. It always does this. You think about uh, this this purifying work of judgment then. Um, The Bible talks about trials that God sends in our life. Those Those aren't judgments in the sense of condemnation. There is no condemnation for those in Christ, but they are trials that purify. Uh, if you think of a silversmith in, in the days when he would use a fire, now they probably use chemicals, but back then you would use fire to purify the silver, and the dross floats to the surface, and that silversmith skims off the dross, and he keeps, keeps going until he can finally see his reflection in the silver, in the molten silver. Then he knows it's pure. That's exactly what Jesus is doing in the lives of his people. He's using the trials of life and things that, would ha- that happen in our life have that judgment sense. For, for those who are a, in Christ, it will purify them. For those who are not in Christ, it will crush them. And they lose hope and they, and they give over to despair or, or run to their idols and besetting sins. He said, it does the same thing. The, the hymn writer uh, caught it, when through fiery trials I cause you to go, the rivers of sorrow will not overflow, my strength will not fail you, I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. You see, Jesus is he's talking about his mission in, in the world. He's come to cast fire on the earth. He's come to bring the reality of God in His holiness to bear on the reality of this world in its lostness, its sin. And that will ultimately, you see, it's going to reveal the truth of things. It will reveal those who stand with God and those who stand against God. The the reality of every person's life is manifest in this, this act. As Jesus has come on a mission, you see, to to bring the truth of God, the reality of God, the consuming fire of God, to bear so that things are revealed and things are purified and things are destroyed. And and that's why Jesus says, would that it were already kindled. This is what he's come to do. He wants the Father's purpose on earth to be fulfilled. Christ did not come, you see, it's sort of the American notion to help us live more self-fulfilled, more um, just happy lives here on earth. It's not why he came. 
Jesus came to bring fire. Jesus came to bring spiritual reality. Jesus came so you have to deal with spiritual reality. You, so you're, you're faced with the truth about a holy God and the truth about the awfulness of sin and the reality of coming judgment. Just imagine Jesus walking through this world and he sees people in, in blindness. They've, they've got blinders on. We'll, we'll look at that in a moment as well. But they don't get the truth of things. They don't see the nature of things. And so Jesus just prays that the, that the fire of God, in that sense, the reality of God, will come to bear on this world. And so things are made clear. Evil is punished. Good is purified. God's purposes are accomplished. That's his passion. That's why he came. But before that can happen, there's a baptism which he must undergo. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now, it might be a little confusing because Jesus, as you remember, already was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. Uh, so why does he need to be baptized again, and what's the nature of this baptism? Well, it's clear that Jesus is speaking of his fast-approaching crucifixion, his death. In John 9, we read that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem, just like the Passover pilgrims. They're on their way to Jerusalem to offer up their sacrifices at the temple. Jesus is doing the same thing, the only difference being he's the sacrifice. He's actually even the temple. But he's the, he is the sacrifice, and Jesus knows this, and it weighs on him. I, don't, I just wonder if if we think about that, when Jesus says, how great is my distress until it was accomplished. We get one of the few glimpses. We don't have a lot in the Gospels about Jesus' emotional life. Here's one, and it's meaningful. Have you ever faced a, a trial that was coming up? Uh, maybe it's a surgery that the doctor says it's, it's, it has to happen. Uh, maybe it's, and it's, and it's major, maybe open heart surgery. Maybe some painful um, surgery that it just can't be avoided and the doctor has set a date and every day that day comes near and near. Or maybe you're facing the, a loved one has been stricken with a terminal disease and you know you're going to lose them. And, and nothing can change that. God can intervene, God can act, but, but you're probably going to lose them. And it's, there's no way to avoid it all you can do is endure it. And, and that's, you see, that's, that's how Jesus is, is speaking here. He, he knows why he's here. He knows that he's, he's come to die. He's come to give his life as a ransom for many. But you see, it's, it's not just the thought of dying that distresses him. If that were true, Jesus would be less than many others who have um, confidently faced death and, and courageously faced death. Even unbelievers, pagans who just had a strength about them when it came to dying. It's not the dying that distresses him. It's the baptism that distresses him. It's the baptism. Well, what is that? Sinclair Ferguson was a help to me. He's talking about, it's helpful to remember that when someone is baptized, it is a sign of union participation with the name into which they are baptized. So Israel going through the Red Sea, the Bible says they were baptized into Moses. So they were identified with Moses. They participated in um, 
Moses' leadership and the blessings and privileges that come from being under that leadership in Moses. When you joined the church, either as an adult or an infant, you were baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It means that there's an identification that happens by faith. By faith, we're united to God, and, and we then can expect all the privileges uh, of the children of God. You're baptized into the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Well, who is Jesus baptized into? What name is he baptized into? And Ferguson, I think rightfully, says that Jesus was baptized into your name. He's baptized into your name when he's baptized. Both in the baptism of John, where he identifies now with those who need to be washed, and in the baptism of his death, where he actually takes on himself the sin of mankind. All the curses and condemnations that belong to the children of men, that's what Jesus takes on in his baptism as he identifies with you. See, it's not the thought of dying that distresses him. It's the thought of being made your sin. All your sexual perversity, all of your lies, all of your pride, your anger, your selfishness, all of the things that make you infinitely, right, deserving judgment in hell. All the things that God hates about sin, all the, all the filth and perversity of it, it's all attributed to Him. He's made sin. He's made your sin. And then he's, he, he must go and stand as a sinner in the presence of a holy God. And Jesus understands what that means. Jesus has a sense in a way that we simply cannot of what it means to suffer the wrath of a holy God, what sin actually deserves. It's the baptism that distresses him. And he's greatly distressed. It hung like a permanent Gethsemane over the days of his life. It's, and there's no avoiding this. It can't be put aside until it is accomplished. This is part of, you see, if, if you have a sense of the weight of this in Jesus' life. And yet every day he's willing to wake up and go to work again for your salvation. Every day he's willing to, to go to battle against the devil. Every day he's willing to do the Father's will. Because he loves you. And was willing to be made sin for you. But that baptism is going to create a division. Do you think that I've come to give, give peace on earth? No, I tell you, I've come to bring division. Now again, that might be a little confusing because didn't the angel say, right, peace on earth, goodwill to men? Isn't, isn't this the prince of peace? Well, yes, he absolutely is the prince of peace. This is the one and the only one who can make peace between a sinful men and a holy God. He came to reconcile people like you and me who have failed at the law, failed at obedience, who've made alliances with the devil. Jesus came to make you reconciled to the Father, robing you in a righteousness not your own. That is, that is very good news. No condemnation now I dread, Jesus and all in him is mine. But the very act, you see, that brings condemned sinners into a relationship of peace with God brings those very same now converted sinners into division with other men. And Jesus says that that division will run through the most intimate relationships. 
the relationships of a family, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, and daughters and in-laws. Why is that the case? You would think that a religion of, of such good news, right, would, would do nothing but spread peace, but it doesn't. It brings division. Why is that? Well, it's, it's not because the converted believer now shuns their family members. If you see that, it's a pretty good evidence that you've, you're, you're looking at a cult. Because that's what cults do. They say, now you belong to us, and your allegiance belongs to us, and you need to shun everyone that does not belong to the cult. That's not what Christians do. Christians are in the world, not of it, but in it, and in it as salt and light. But you see, what happens is that the newly converted person discovers something about themselves. They've been made a new creation, and they, in a sense, don't fit anymore in the world they knew. They, they don't enjoy the gossip, or if they do, they, they repent of it and ask forgiveness for it. It's very convicting if you're in a circle of, 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 of friends who are gossiping and someone says, says I am, I'm so sorry, we shouldn't do this. I know this is wrong. Would you please forgive me? Suddenly everybody else in the group comes under conviction. But this, you see, this new creation can't abide the dirty jokes anymore. They just, they just it's not funny. And they, they walk away. And they're not willing to do shady business deals for the family business anymore. And they even cannot submit to the father of the family. In those days, father was Lord. He was the king of the home. Of the home and, and his rule was the rule. But you see, now suddenly this, his son, is this young man, has, or, or his daughter, they become a Christian. And now they won't bow to the family deities. They won't submit in the same way. They'll seek to honor their father, but he is not the ultimate authority in their life. Jesus is. This is why states fear Christians. Because even though Christians seek to honor the king, Christians understand that the king is not the ultimate authority. Jesus is. And these Christians don't seem to be afraid of the king's authority. They don't seem to be afraid of one who can kill the body. They have a greater fear, a holy love and devotion for the one who reigns over them and who gave his life for them. You see, that's... How do you control people like that if you're, if you're a government? You can't control them. And so there's division, there's tension. And no matter how well-intentioned the family unit might be, no matter how tight it might be and how well-intentioned they are to preserve good relationships, the truth is, is that if you have in that family those who follow Jesus Christ and those who do not follow Jesus Christ, you have a fundamental division. It doesn't mean you can't love each other. It doesn't mean you can't get along, but there is a division. And that division is going to be experienced. I remember when Brent Wilson, a wonderful young man who's with the Lord now, is converted. See, he's been gone 12 years this January. So he was um, about 14, 15 years ago he was converted. And his parents were living eagerly for the things of this world. Brent was about 22 years old. Uh, he ran into obstacles in his family, great opposition. Uh, his, his mother has since been converted. Uh, I'm not, I don't remember if his dad, Mike, do you remember? If his father, I don't remember if his father was, but his mother was wonderfully converted later on. 
But he ran, ran into all kinds of opposition, not just from his parents who were living eagerly for the world, but also his grandparents who uh, were members at Fountain Street Church, which is a church in Christian name only. Uh, but, but they were offended that Brent was talking about the Bible as, as, as though Christians were supposed to believe all of this, and they didn't believe hardly any of it, and yet they were confident they were good Christians. And they were very disappointed in him, in him for, for letting himself be sucked into this, this strange teaching. And there was, it was hard division. Friends, that's being experienced all over the world. We have uh, brothers and sisters in Christ who've been cast out of their families completely. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who are, have been beaten by family members. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who've lost their life to family members who've uh, felt duty-bound to, to kill them because they became Christians. Some of you have experienced that this holiday season. You've been with family members, maybe members you haven't seen for a long time, and you just experienced we're not on the same page. Maybe it's, it's happened in a much more intimate way. Maybe it's happened in, in, uh, between parents and children, and you realize we're not on the same page. Maybe it's happened in your marriage, and you're married to someone who does not know Jesus Christ, and you know the loneliness of, of that, that you cannot share the most precious thing in your life you cannot share with your spouse because they want nothing to do with it. Jesus does not apologize for this. It's, it's not just an unfortunate byproduct of being a Christian. Jesus says, I came for this purpose. Now, why would he say that? Because, you see, Jesus wants us to wake up to the reality of things. And the reality of things are is that if any man is in, new, is in Christ, he is a new creation. And if a man is not in Christ, he belongs to the old form of things. He's still in bondage. He's still in the darkness. And the two, light and darkness, cannot have fellowship. It doesn't mean they can't get along. It doesn't mean they can't bless each other in, in, in many ways. But at, in a fundamental sense, there is going to be division. And so when Jesus sends his disciples out, he wants them to know, you are going to face opposition. In your families, you're going to face opposition in the world. Don't be surprised. It's the spiritual nature of things. It cannot be avoided. Rico Tice, in his book, Honest Evangelism, just talks about the, 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 the kind of the hidden little secret about evangelism is that you're going to be opposed. If you, if you actually talk to people about Jesus, you're going to be mocked. You're going to be ridiculed. Uh, people are going to shake their head at you in unbelief and dismay that you could be so stupid, so narrow-minded, so judgmental, so whatever as to believe what the Bible actually says. And so there's constantly pressure from the world to say, you know, you can have your religion, you can have your faith systems, but, but don't go around acting like it's something unique. At least admit that fundamentally we're all the same. And that whatever differences we might have pales in significance to, the, to what we share. That fundamentally we're all just doing the same thing. We're all on the same path. However you want to get there is fine. At least admit that. Well, that is something the Christian can never admit. Because it's not true. I hope you never say to someone who fervently holds to a false religion, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that at least you're religious or at least you're interested in spiritual things uh, because we share that in common. No, 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 no. It's not true. It's not true. If all you share is a common spiritual interest, then you're not a Christian. A Christian shares a new, has a new life. He's been made a new creation. 
And that eternal things, the most fundamental things, you see, determine where the alliances really are. And Jesus, Jesus tells us that he's come to bring division. We should not be surprised. And so, you see, a decision has to be made. And that's, a, that's just a, a word that the church needs to hear. A decision has to be made. Jesus rebukes his, his audience. These are Jewish people who think that all is well with them. He says to them, you, when you see a, cr- a cloud arise in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? It sounds harsh, but again, he means it. He just says, you silly Silly people, you're so proud of your ability to tell the weather. Uh, you, you see a cloud out west and you say, it's going to rain tomorrow, and, and b- 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 it does. Or you see the wind has shifted from the south, and that's where the desert is, and you say, it's going to be a scorcher tomorrow, and sure enough, it is. But you're a hypocrite. Now, why would Jesus use that word? Why would he say hypocrite? Well, the answer is because while people boast of their ability, you see, to interpret the signs in the present and to forecast events in the future, they have no understanding of spiritual truth. They can't tell the time spiritually. And so you have people today who are very confident in their ability to to foretell what's going to happen to the markets in 2016. And, and they have, uh, they've studied it very well. They have a good understanding of, of the different factors that play into that. And we like to talk about uh, our confidence of what's going to happen in the future in world events and, and maybe even weather affairs. And yet Jesus says, utter ignorance and unconcern about spiritual things. You can't tell the time spiritually. You see, when, when the forecasters say there's a blizzard coming, in fact, I don't know if you saw the weather forecast, there's a, there's a winter storm advisory for tomorrow, freezing rain, quarter inch to half an inch, uh, maybe power outages, and some of you are already thinking, boy, you know, are we ready for that? Uh, when, a bl- when a blizzard is forecast, uh, just go to Meyer and watch people stock up. Why? Because, well, that's what you do. You'd be foolish not to do that. And yet do you realize that, that Jesus Christ can be presented and the reality of a coming day of judgment can be presented and it, it just people have no concern for it. it. We'll see how it goes. I'm not worried about it. There's no need to prepare for that. that. That's what Jesus sees. When Jesus walked around this world, that's what he saw. He saw people eagerly getting ready for the blizzards. He saw people uh, confidently making their forecasts and making their preparations in light of that, and yet utterly ignorant to spiritual and eternal realities. And that's the sight that Jesus wants to give us. And so, you see, he gives us counsel. Because the things that he talks about are actually true. This is not just a religious message. These aren't just general uh, spiritual um, ideas. This is Jesus, the Son of God, talking to people in that day and in this day. And Jesus, the Son of God, precisely because he came to save people and because he loves people and he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. This is Jesus standing in the world and saying, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? When the accuser is dragging you before the magistrate, settle issues with him. Don't wait. 
lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you into prison and you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. The meaning is very clear. It's very simple. Every one of us is heading, we got a destiny with the judge, with the magistrate. Everyone, right? It's appointed unto man once to die and then to face judgment. You're on your way to the magistrate today, whether you know it or not, and the accuser is bringing you there, and the accuser is nothing less than the law of God itself, and it has a case against you, and it's locked tight. So what are you going to do? Jesus says you need to settle matters. Notice Jesus assumes the guilt of those who are on their way to the magistrate. There's, they're not going there to have a trial to judge the innocence or the guilt of the person. They just go there. The magistrate hands down the sentence and then hands you over to the officer who brings you to prison where you will never get out. I'd like to ask people the question, if you were to die tonight and God said, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you answer that question? Now, I often get the answer... Uh, well, I believe in Jesus, and I've done the best that I can do. Um, I'm, I'm not perfect, but God knows my intentions. God knows my heart. See, when people say that, they misunderstand both the nature of saving faith and they misunderstand the nature of the coming judgment. They misunderstand the nature of saving faith because people tend to think that believing in Jesus somehow is a good work that gets you points. It doesn't. The devil believes in Jesus much more fervently than you do. He gets no points for it. Saving faith is not being willing to admit that Jesus was a historical person who did miraculous things, and maybe even you're willing to admit that he's the son of God. That is not saving faith. Saving faith is abandoning your works, abandoning your abilities to make your life uh, good enough for God to accept, and you throw that aside, and you come to Jesus alone to, to receive by faith alone a righteousness that is sufficient for the day of judgment, that which Jesus Christ himself gives. And you abandon all hope and everything else forever. That's saving faith. And it, and it happens, when that happens to you, it changes your life. Not, not overnight, you're not suddenly sanctified perfectly. It's not even close to that. But if that happens, and God has given you the gift of that kind of faith, the effects of that are going to be at work. And you're going to be grieving sin like you didn't grieve it before. And, and you're going to be desiring, you're going to hunger for holiness in a new way. It's, it's going to change your life slowly, oh so slowly, but it's going to happen. And so we need to understand what true saving faith is. But we also need to under, really understand the nature of the judgment day. People who say those sorts of things, they think that when they get to the great white throne of God, they're going to be able to make a case on their behalf before the judge. That this is a place for them to appeal for their cause, a place to try and convince the judge that what they've done is good enough to get in and hoping that the good outweighs the bad. But that's a misunderstanding of the nature of the judgment. You see, when you go stand before the great right throne, the verdict has already been cast. It's already been cast. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's the verdict. And the sentence has already been made known. The soul that sins shall surely die. There's nothing left to adjudicate when you get to the great right throne. There's only the handing over to the officer. There's only the, the judgment, the condemnation, the penalty 
to be given to you. Unless, unless you've settled with your accuser on the way. That's what Jesus is saying. You need to settle with the accuser. Who's the accuser? The law of God is the accuser. Well, how are you going to settle with the law of God? Because the law of God says, be perfect. And that's, you blew that a long time ago. How do you settle with the accuser? With God's holy law. Well, the gospel says, by finding a righteousness that satisfies the demands of the law. And that is what Jesus came to give us. Jesus bore that penalty of the law. He was baptized in our name, took on our sin, and then gave us, you see, that free gift of righteousness that satisfies the demands of the law. So when you confess your sin and you come to Jesus in a saving faith, you receive this robe of righteousness that's perfect, complete. You, you've satisfied the accuser. You're done with the accuser. There's no more condemnation left for you. Jesus and all in him is yours. That's what we just sang. So bold you approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. And some of you have heard it so many times. My question is, have you settled accounts with the accuser? Are you hoping that by uh, being spiritually minded or being spiritually interested, uh, having some sort of generic faith in Jesus and, and uh, trying to do decent sorts of things, are you hoping that's going to that's gonna avail for you when you stand before the throne of judgment? Friends, I have to tell you, it's not going to. It's not going to. Jesus wants you to know it's not sufficient. And Jesus also wants us to know that there will be many in the last day who thought that it was. Many who went to church. Many who professed Christ. Many who will say, Lord, Lord. And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Is that going to be you? Is that going to be you? And you can answer that question today by doing what Jesus calls us to do. Confess the truth. I cannot be good enough. I will never be good enough. Jesus alone was good enough, and Jesus offers himself to me as I confess my sin and trust in him. I don't know where your heart is today. You might not even know where your heart is today. God knows where your heart is today. God knows the truth about you. And friend, this text is in the Bible so that you can know the truth about you. This text is, Jesus speaks hard words because he loves you. He is not willing that you should perish. Takes no pleasure in your destruction. Why will you die, is what the Bible says. There's no need to. There's no need to. Jesus Christ came into the world to save real sinners, actual sinners, people who've offended the law and deserve hell, and Jesus invites you to believe in him. And if you have believed in him, then Jesus calls us this morning to delight in what he's accomplished and, and to live in the boldness of it. The accuser has been silenced. You can say to the devil, your accuser, get lost Justice has been satisfied. Mercy has been poured out. You have no charge against me. You can say that to your own conscience and then press on with confidence in 2016 in faith and obedience. I know you've heard this message before. Is it making a difference in your life? That's a challenge I face. I'm reading a book right now by um, Kyle Strobel. 
on just taking Jonathan Edwards' ideas and applying them um, to, to growing in sanctification. And the central point that he makes is that being a Christian is coming into an experience of the love of God in Jesus Christ, and growing as a Christian is growing in that experience of the love of God for you in Jesus Christ, the delight that God has in saving you, and all the joy that he promises you. And I say to myself, I say, that, that is something I've got to figure out. I need to, I need to know more about that. What is it that this year you need to know more about? You need to grow in as you grow as a Christian. Friends, it's all there for us because of Jesus. So let's pursue it. Let's pursue it. Let's experience the reality of this loving Savior. And then let's go to this lost world and let's invite them to know him too. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you speak uh, strong words because of your strong passion to see sinners rescued and to see the Father glorified. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, the words that you've spoken this morning would be on our hearts and minds and that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, you would use these words to rescue and save sinners even in this room this morning. Oh, Jesus, I thank you that you're not about platitudes. You're not about religious niceties. You're not about just sentimental, spiritual cliches, but you are about the real work of atoning for sin and the real work of purchasing men back for God and the real work then of applying your redemption to the souls of men and women and children today. Thank you that your disposition towards this world is love. And that you came then in love to rescue us. May we, Lord, uh, believe it. May we delight in it. May we grow in it. That it bears fruit. For your name's sake, amen.